Part 2, Chapter 8 of The Beach of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock. The Beach of Dreams by H. D. Ver Stackpool. Part 2, Chapter 8. The great beach of Kerguelen shows above the mark long stretches where no sand is, only rock, basalt planed and smoothed by the seas of countless ages, level as a ballroom floor and broken by rifts and potholes. Between tide marks these potholes serve as traps for all sorts of sea creatures. Once the waves must have beaten right up to the low and broken basalt cliffs full of caves floored with sand. But volcanic action raising the beach has pushed the tide mark out leaving a shore varying in width from half a mile to a few hundred yards. This is the breeding place of the sea elephant. Halfway between the lizard point and the point further to the east, a river comes down, disembarging through three months. On the banks of this river is the seal nursery, where in the summer the young sea elephants tumble and play and take their swimming lessons. Whilst the mothers lie on rocks and the fathers fish and hunt and fight in battles, the roaring of which resounds for miles. Here the penguins drill and hold council and law courts and marry and get divorced and hold political meetings. Here the rabbits play and the terns foregather and here the wind that blows from everywhere but the east hunt and yell and pile in winter a twenty-foot sea that breaks in seven miles of thunder under seven miles of spray thick as the smoke of battle. Duck and teal haunt the place, and gulls of nearly every known kind snow it and flick it with movement. Yet above the thunder of the waves and the cry of the birds and the shouting of the winds when they blow, there hangs a silence, the silence of the remote and prehistoric. The living world of men seems cut off from here by faraway doors and forever. After supper they had explored the cave mouths in the cliff opposite to where the boat had beached. There were three caves just here. One was impracticable owing to the water dripping from the roof, but the other two, floored with hard sand, were good enough for shelter. The men had stowed the provisions and themselves in the western mast, giving the girl the other and the boat sail for a pillow. It was old Bompard who thought of the latter. Latouche seemed to have no thought for anyone or anything but himself. He grumbled all the time during supper, grumbled at the fact that there was no stuff to make a fire with, that they had nothing warm to drink, that sometime soon their tobacco must run out. It seemed to Cleo as she lay with her head on the hard sailcloth and her body on the hard sand, covered with the oilskin coat which she had taken off to use as a blanket, that through the league-long rumble of the surf she could hear him grumbling still. She did not care. Hard though the floor was, she did not mind. She was chloroformed, chloroformed by the air of Kerguelen, 
the air that fills the lung with life keeps a man going all day with an energy and buoyancy unknown elsewhere and then fells him with sleep she awoke when the whale birds had ceased crying just after dawn awoke fresh and new and full of life she felt none of that troubled surprise which comes when the mind has to adjust itself to the new situation on the awakening for the first time after a great disaster it was as though her mind had already adjusted itself and discounted everything she rose up and leaving the oilskin coat and southwester on the floor of the cave came out onto the beach the fine weather still held and the day was strong now lighting the beach the sea and the distant islands through the sky of high gray eastward drifting clouds the boat lay where it had been pulled up the tide now coming in and the legions of birds were flitting and blowing about and stalking on the sands as far as the eye could reach she came to the cave where the men were bompard and latouche lying on their backs might have been dead but for the sound of their snoring bompard was lying with his wrist across his eyes latouche with both hands beside him clenched the tins of beef and the bread bags showed vaguely in the gloom behind them she stood for a moment watching them and then turning she came down to the boat lying high and dry on the sand she was trying to realize that on the morning of the day before yesterday at this hour she had been lying in her bunk on board the gaston de paris to realize this and also the fact that her present position seemed scarcely strange she ought she had told herself to be astonished at what had happened and to be bewailing her fate yet looking back now over yesterday and the day before everything seemed part of a level and logical sequence almost like the events of a stormy day on board ship the tragedy of the destruction of the gaston only partly experienced could not be fully felt standing by the boat she tried to realize it and failed tried to grasp what she knew to be the horror and pity of it and failed she was neither hard nor insensible she simply could not grasp it and her position here with two rough men very little food and little chance of escape how she would have pitied herself a few days ago could she have foreseen yet here with the firm sands under her feet and the wind blowing in her face reality instead of hurting her as it had done in the boat on the awakening yesterday morning soothed her and reassured her everything seemed firm again and the fear that the ugly coast had raised in her mind had vanished she came along the beach looking at the gulls turned over a huge starfish and picked up kelp ribbons to examine them half a mile or so from the cave she was about to turn back when her eye caught a strange appearance on the sea hundreds and hundreds of moving points drawing in to the shore white and black points like a shoal of fish only half submerged it was a fleet of swimming birds she sat down on the sand to watch as they took the shore with a rush through the foam then safely beached the fleet became an army of penguins 
She had seen pictures of penguins, so she knew what they were, and she had read Anatoly's France's Penguin Island. These, then, were the real things, and she watched them fascinated as one who sees storyland taking visible and concrete form. The penguins formed line, broke into companies, drilled a bit, and then began to move up the beach. The figure of the girl did not seem to disturb them in the least. One company passed to the left, one to the right, whilst that immediately fronting her halted a few feet away and saluted her, bowing like little old-fashioned men in black sallow-tail coats and immaculate shirt fronts, little old-fashioned men with sharp quizzical eyes, polished, humorous, polite, and entirely friendly. The company on the right wheeled to the examiner as did the company on the left, so that she found herself almost in a hollow square. Wherever she turned there were birds bowing to her or things in the semblance of birds, absolutely fearless, so close that she could have touched them had she carried a walking stick. She rose up to allow them to pass and then went on like mechanical things, wound up and released forming line again and seeming to forget her. She remembered the guillemots and their rudeness and the way they had stormed and jeered at the boat. Did all that mean more than the politeness and friendliness of the penguins? If she were lying dead, would not the guillemots pass her without enmity and the penguins without friendliness, as indifferent to her faith as the wave of the sea on the blowing wind? They would as indifferent as the great island standing out there in the distance, mauve and slate-gray against the morning. As she came back along the beach, her mind was battling with a problem that had suddenly risen. She had neither brush nor comb nor glass. Her hair was beautiful, and she loved it. Her face was beautiful, but she did not love it. It was herself. She could not view it from an independent standpoint, but she could view her hair almost as impartially as a dress, and she loved it with a strange passion that women have for things of texture. The hair of Cleo de Bomsart had been waited upon like a divinity by many a priestess in the form of a maid. It had been dressed and shampooed and treated by artists and adepts. The hours of brushing alone, if put together, would have made a terrific total. The result was perfection, and even now, after all she had gone through, it showed scarcely disarrangement, lustrous and beautiful, dressed with artful simplicity in the Greek style, and outlining the perfect curves of her head. The wind was blowing now in gusto from the sea, but she scarcely noticed it as she walked, facing the problem that shipwreck had put before her a problem the first of a long queue ranging from soap to a change of garments. She was fighting it, and at the same time battling with the strengthening wind, which suddenly something sprang on her with the yell of a tiger and flung her on the sand, pinning her there. End of Part 2 Chapter 8